That's what Adam and Eve get to experience. They are walking with the Lord. They are enjoying his design. They're having this unhindered relationship with one another and this unhindered relationship with God. They're walking in purity. They've got absolutely nothing to hide. They're naked and unashamed. Uh, And it's just this beautiful picture of God's design. They are literally living in paradise. And then we get to Genesis 3, and we see it all fall apart. We see Satan enter the picture. We see Satan tempt Eve to eat of the fruit, and she does, and she gives it to her husband, Adam, and he eats, and sin enters through that rebellious act, and mankind falls away from God's good design. They usurp God's authority and they follow their own desires rather than God's commands. And paradise is shattered. And humanity and the world has been living under the results of that rebellion ever since. It is the root of all evil that we see in our world. It is the root of all sickness. It is the root of all disease. It is the root of divorce. It is the root of unfaithfulness. It is the root of all wickedness and all immorality in the world because of that one act. And so the effects of the fall cannot be overstated. And I think every single one of us, we look at the world, whether you know Jesus or not, you look at the world and you go, there's just something wrong. There is something wrong with the world, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, the, the first man, they were, and woman, they were representatives of all humanity. And all humanity has come from Adam and Eve. And as such, the fall of Adam and Eve was the fall of all of us. From generation to generation, the twisted sinful nature that came forth in the garden is passed down the line of humanity. Paul says it this way in Romans 5 verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin entered the world through Adam and spread to all humanity. Death enters the world through Adam and spreads to all humanity. And so you and I, we struggle with sin natures and we face death because of what happened in the garden. And we've looked over the last few weeks at some of the sinful effects in Genesis 3. We see that it stained the marital relationship between Adam and his wife. They were no, able, no longer uh, naked and unashamed. They covered themselves. We saw that it increased a woman's pain and childbearing. We talked about that last week. Uh, we saw that men have this tendency to be passive, to not step into the gap where we should. Uh, we, we see this reality of God's creation trying to usurp humanity, trying to usurp God's design, trying to take over the role of God from him and kind of be our own gods in our own lives and be our own masters. And so if you look around you, if you read the news, you see sin everywhere. It's everywhere. If you look within you, you see sin everywhere. (laughs) The effects are all-encompassing in our world. And the most terrible effect of all is that sin has caused a separation in our relationship with the loving God who created us. From walking in closeness with him in the garden to hiding in fear of him. From fellowship to alienation and hostility. 
And that is bad news for us. That is bad news for every single one of us. Because God's word says that separation from God is death. God had warned Adam in Genesis 2, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, Adam and Eve, they ate of the tree, and the day that they ate of it, they did not die a physical death. And so God must have meant something else when he said that the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Because Adam doesn't die physically that day. Physical death would come later, but he, didn't, but he did die in a certain way that day. Not, not physically, but spiritually. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is a separation of the soul from God. And that is of much greater consequence. This thing hates me today. Should I grab the other one? I'll grab the other one. I swear it depends on how excited I am. It's like I get excited and then I generate a lot of electricity and yeah, I don't know, there's something wrong with my body. I need to be in a bubble. <laughs> what was I talking about? Spiritual death. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> just something light. We're just talking about spiritual death. <laughs> um, but yeah, we see spiritual death that occurred as God had said that it would occur in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. And this spiritual death is illustrated by the fact of what happens when Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden after they had eaten the fruit in Genesis 3, 8. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is death. They hid themselves from God. They were separated from him. Spiritual death is so much worse than physical death. We all die a physical death, but the man or woman separated from God is already spiritually dead. And unless that state changes, they will remain that way. And their end place, their end spot where they are going is hell. Now, that's not an easy truth, and that's not an enjoyable truth to hear in our day and age. But when you are separated from God spiritually, it leads to something the Bible calls the second death. The book of Revelation talks about this, and the second death is much worse than the first because it is a final and eternal separation from God. It is hell. Because of sin entering the world through one man, this is the path that every single one of us is on. The path to the second death. Because we have all been born separated from God. And unless our state changes, we are on that path to hell. And this began in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we all need to get off this path that we've been on since the garden but we can't do it ourselves. We need a savior to do it. And so as we've gone through Genesis 3, we've looked at what the serpent did. We've looked at what Adam did. We've looked at what Eve did. And this morning, I want to look at what God does. 
And how even in the Garden of Eden, as humanity falls, God's grace is shown. That yes, there is judgment, yes, there is justice, but there is mercy that comes through a promise that God would make a way for man and woman to escape the second death, a way that they could not secure on their own, but he would do it for them. So if you take one thing away from this morning, let it be this. As descendants of Adam and Eve, we are all sinners, and a sinner must die. Yet he will live if he places his faith in the Lord who provides a substitute. As descendants of Adam, we are all sinners, and sinners must die. Yet she will live if she places her faith in the Lord who provides a substitute. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in Genesis 3, as humanity rebels against you, we see your promise. We see your plan. Lord, may that give us hope this morning as we look at the promise, even in the beginning of creation, that came to fulfillment in Jesus. Father, I pray for hearts here that don't know you. Father, I pray that even as we look at this, this veiled promise, they would see the gloriousness of what you've done. Father, for us who, who do know you, who have a relationship with Jesus, may it just be a, a fresh reminder of your grace that is seen all throughout your word, all throughout creation, that you have had a plan for us from the beginning to save sinners. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. May you speak to our hearts as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see uh, in verse 14 and verse 15, the first thing that God does uh, is he curses the serpent. And he curses the serpent, I, I like to divide it in two parts, in verse 14 and in verse 15. Because I look at verse 14 as God cursing the serpent, the animal, as a symbol of sin. And in verse 15, he is cursing Satan, the one who entered that animal, who spoke to the woman and caused her to sin. And so in Genesis 3.14, God curses the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so God curses the serpent to be on its belly, slithering around all of its life. And what all commentators kind of agree with is that this is a representation of punishment, that it is this, 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 he is cast down, that there is no dignity in slithering on your belly and eating dust all the days of your life. It is signifying his low place as God punishes him for the sin of the garden. But just to have a little bit of fun for a moment, there is a debate that rages in Christianity about whether the serpent used to have legs. You maybe heard this debate before. There's a question of, okay, God curses the serpent and says, on your belly you will go for the rest of your days. Was he not on his belly before that? And so there is this ongoing question in Christianity, of whether he had legs or not. My conclusion is maybe, but there's reasonable arguments on both sides of this debate. And so we're going to do a poll this morning. And this is not meant to divide you. 
But who thinks that the serpent had legs before the fall? Okay, okay, all right. Okay, good number. And, and who doesn't? Who abstains? <laughs> okay, if, if you abstain, all right. <laughs> oh, curveball. Curveball. <laughs> now we're getting into it. <laughs> uh, why does it matter? I don't know. It's these things that we get stuck on. But in case you're wondering, most commentaries say, yes, they did have legs. These are commentators. They're not God. They're just making an educated guess. But if you said yes, you are in with the likes of Martin Luther and Matthew Henry. So if that sounds good to you, okay? If you said no, you're hanging out with John Calvin. So either side, oh, not as popular, okay? <laughs> Genesis 3.15. So he curses the serpent. And then he curses Satan. And he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 is an incredible verse. It is an incredible promise. We see part of the promise that God makes to creation. Verse 15 is known as the protoevangelium. That's a really fancy word. But the protoevangelium is the first declaration of the gospel. This is the first time that we see the gospel declared in the Old Testament. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so what is God promising here? Well, first, God is promising that there would be hostility between the woman and Satan, right? That Satan deceived the woman, and it led to the fall of humanity. But God would use the woman to bring forth a seed that would ultimately destroy and conquer Satan. And so there would be hostility between the woman and Satan. And second, the woman's offspring would battle Satan's offspring. And this is both a singular and collective promise. Because as I just said, there's this singular promise that there would be one born of a woman that would be Satan's greatest enemy that would defeat him. But it's also this collective promise because there would be many. There would be many of every nation and tribe and tongue who would follow that one who were born of a woman who would continue to fight against Satan from a place of victory. So we see it in Genesis 3.15. We see this singular promise fulfilled in the New Testament in Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The promise of Emmanuel, the promise of God with us is here in verse 15. Though veiled, it's there in the beginning and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And third, the third truth that we see here, and this one's a tough truth, but the third truth that we see here is that humanity is divided into two families. Humanity is divided into two families. There are the children of God and the children of the devil. That's alluded to here. It says the woman's offspring and the devil's offspring. Here's the thing that we have to understand about God's creation that we often forget as followers of Jesus is that there is no moral or spiritual ambiguity in God's creation. 
There is moral and immoral. There is spiritually alive and spiritually dead. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And every person lands in one or the other kingdom. This is why evangelism is so important. This is why we go and we tell people there's no gray area that you can hide in God's creation. You're a child of God or a child of the devil. That's what the word says. And that's what we have to hold to. We have to understand the urgency of the reality of every heart. There's no gray area you can hide. I'm just going to go right down the middle and skirt everything. You can't. It's one or the other. The offspring of the woman here signifies the children of God, the offspring of the devil. This is an idea that's picked up in John's gospel. In John chapter 8, verse 44, it says, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The word is clear. There are two kingdoms and you belong to one or the other. Do you see the urgency in this message? And then God says, here's the hope of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And when it says, he shall bruise your head, that's a fatal blow. That is a fatal blow that is given to Satan, and it is affirmed in the New Testament. Revelation 12, verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And verse 2 in chapter 20 of Revelation, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And in Romans, Paul tells the followers of Jesus that he is writing to that they have hope because the one born of a woman dealt a death blow to Satan. And so then Paul says to the followers of Christ in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What an amazing promise. Because Jesus dealt a fatal blow to Satan, Paul says to followers of Jesus, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's an amazing promise. There is this hope of the gospel that we see in Genesis. We see this hope of Satan's ultimate defeat. And at the same time, we see that there is a reality of suffering that comes with the fall until that final victory is ultimately declared when the one born of a woman completes that final death blow to Satan. Because he says, he shall bruise your heel. What does that mean? It means Jesus came and he sustained injury because of the sin in the world. He sustained injuries on our behalf, but not mortal, he rose again. He did not stay in the grave. This also means you shall bruise his heel. It means Satan has been permitted to afflict 
the humanity of Christ, and Satan has been permitted to persecute the people of God. There's a reality of that. We see it. Satan is permitted to persecute God's people. We have ultimate victory, but we walk through some pain, we walk through some suffering, and it is because of the fall, and it is because of our enemy Satan, who's working against us. But this is the promise that's veiled in Genesis 3.15, that there would be judgment for the enemy, but redemption available for humanity. And in the garden, we get this first glimpse of how that redemption would happen. Genesis 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You know, after they sinned, Adam and Eve, they tried to cover themselves, right? They tried to cover their rebellion. They tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. But that was insufficient. Just like when you and I sin and we try to cover ourselves because of it, it is insufficient. There's a bigger picture that we see happening in Genesis 3 here that we are sinners, that we cannot cover ourselves. We cannot atone for ourselves. And so God makes them garments. God clothes them. He says, I will cover you you, and it is a promise of what he does for all humanity through Jesus Christ. He covers us with the blood of Jesus, and in the garden here as he covers Adam and Eve, we see the first animal sacrifice that is pointing to the sacrificial system that God would put in place, the system through which Sin would be atoned. The system through which Jesus would ultimately die, his blood atoning for our sin. We see it right here in Genesis as God covers Adam and Eve. Hebrews 9:22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We see it right there, Genesis 3:21 promise of it. We see God's grace all over, the glimpse of what's to come. And then God covers Adam and Eve, and then he removes them from the garden. Here's another poll for you. Punishment or grace? God removing Adam and Eve from the garden, was it a punishment or was it mercy? I hear mercy. Mercy? Yeah. God covers them. It's a promise of what's to come. And then he expels them from the garden. But he covers them first to signify it's not always going to be this way. There's not always going to be this separation. But for now, there has to be. And they're expelled from Eden, and they're expelled from paradise. In Genesis 3, to 23, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
Here we see the reason why God took them, expelled them from the garden. He says he's become, they become like one of us. What does it mean? It means they've started to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. They've usurped God's place. They become like God, believing that they can determine their own destiny. And it led to death and it led to spiritual separation. And so they're in this state of separation from God. And he says, lest they reach out their hand and grab the fruit from the tree of life and eat of it and live forever in separation from me. No, no, I won't let that happen. Out of the garden, Adam and Eve. You have to leave for now. You have to be expelled for now so that you can come back. I don't want you to live forever separated from me. I'm going to make a way to bring you back. One day, you know what's amazing about this? One day, we'll be able to eat from the tree of life again. Isn't that amazing? We'll be able to eat from the tree of life again. But that'll come after we're fully redeemed. In Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It was mercy. Yes, there was punishment, but it was mercy. So I don't want you to be separated from me forever, but I'm going to bring you back. I have a way to remove this separation. And we're going to celebrate that in two weeks. Oh, it's going to be joyous. It's going to be loud. As God clothed Adam and Eve, he clothes every single one of us in righteousness when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God clothes us in righteousness as he clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. And so remember, a sinner shall die, yet he or she will live if they place their faith in the Lord, the one who provides a substitute. Amen. Your growth step this week. We all know people who need to hear this. And it's a little bit veiled this week, but I'm telling you, on Easter, it's not going to be veiled. We preach the gospel. We tell people, this is hope. This is where you find it. This is the only place. And so, if you know someone who does not know Jesus, invite them. I've said before, we've, we're, we've made two services on Good Friday and Easter Sunday so that we can fill this place out with people who need to hear the gospel. And so invite those who don't know this message so they can hear it and have an opportunity to put their faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much 
for this good news. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. We thank you that even in Genesis 3, we can see your promise of redemption. Lord, you are so good and you are so faithful. Father, that you have made a way for us to come into your presence, that you have torn that veil that we can come into the most holy places and have a relationship with you. Father, we give you praise for that this morning. And Father, as we anticipate celebrating that on Easter, Lord, would you put on our hearts that man, that woman, that child who needs to know this good news, who needs to hear about Jesus, who needs to put their faith in Jesus. God, we, we all need it. We all need it. But Lord, put on our hearts, who is it in our life that we need to invite here to hear this good news? Lord, we are so thankful that you have clothed us in righteousness, that it is not through our works at all, but it is through what you have done in, on the cross. And we just give you praise and glory this morning for Jesus. Lord, may you have your way in all of our lives. Father, we want you to be Lord. We want you to be King. And we thank you that you have saved us. God, may we follow you with hands raised high to the heavens, to the, to the one who is holy, to the one who is worthy of all of our praise. Lord, as we sing out to you today, in Jesus' name, amen.